my name is Jordan Preston. This is Back of the Class Podcast. And if A, all people who clap when the airplane lands are brave, and B, all people who clap when the airplane lands are annoying, then C, all brave people are all annoying. Excuse me, class. <laughs> class. <laughs> <laughs> Joining me at the back of the class today is a returning member of the back of the class, William Silverman. Will, how is it hanging? Things are hanging pretty good. They're hanging. Haven't been to the back of the class in a while, but uh, here we go to regain my champion seat. Last time you were here, well, first of all, last time you were here, champion seat, it it was a great episode. That is the episode that I use whenever I'm talking to like adults, you know what I mean? I don't want them just clicking on like Ah. any episode and then being like, oh, this is like, yeah combo i'm like oh you know what you should listen to there's one about free will when i'm talking about with adults like trying to hype myself up i use your episode yeah last time you were here it was like episode seven of season two and now we're on season five so a lot (laughs) has happened since then a lot's changed since then a lot has changed did you end up switching programs by the way i haven't yet Mm. so what i ended up doing actually at university was i think everybody who has known me for more than 15 minutes can probably figure out that I have ADHD. Mm -hmm. So school, like university, has been destructively bad for me. I have been, you know, doing poorly. So I decided, you know what, I'll pull out. I found a job and I just worked for the semester. I'm going to go back in September. I already got my courses selected and I'm ready to go back this upcoming September. It's good. Everyone needs a break. Like, I feel like everyone probably should have taken a gap year like I did. If it's not going to work this year, especially with online, like it's just, that's just not the way that, that's not the way we're supposed to learn. I, I know you and me, you and me especially, both get it. (laughs) yeah the the online the talking head on the screen oh my god has not been working for me it has been uh it's been a nightmare i just asked because last time on the episode will mentioned that he was wanting to switch programs for those of you who did listen to the episode you will know that will and i went to both middle school and high school together that's right but more importantly we took the same philosophy course that got me started on this journey in the first place Last time I asked you where you sat in the class, I remember you said that in most classes you were back of the class, but then like the few subjects that you enjoy, like philosophy, like history, you slowly shift to the front of a class, very much teacher's pet. Do we still agree with that sentiment or do we think that's changed? Well, I feel like when I go back to class, I will continue to agree with that sentiment, but for as long as I've been like right now, like in university online, mm-hmm. like the, the furthest out of the classroom, out of the You're classroom, not even like in class. that far back. You don't, even, even, you don't even know that where the building back. is. That's how bad it's you been. You don't even know where the building is right now. That's right. Okay. Well, I wanted to know. And then now that you're back, it's uh, season five, specifically focusing on deontology, aka duty-based ethics. You uh, ready to jump in? Ready to get into it? I'm ready when you are. I want to start off by introducing a dude, very cool dude, by the name of Immanuel Kant. Oh, boy. Little claps. Little claps all around for Kant over mm-hmm. here. I remember, before we get like super into it. Oh, him, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give you a little I anecdotes. Actually, so I went with my girlfriend, because she's a year younger than me, to her graduation. Oh, that's so sweet. They got a grad. So I actually saw He Who Shall Not Be Named. Oh, yeah? And we had a very brief chat about uh, Emmanuel Kant. And in his own words, nobody understands what Kant is trying to say ever. <laughs> huh. Well, I'm here to disprove that Mr. He Who Shall Not Be Named. Writing style, apparently, or like at least in, in his view, his... Uh, uh, writing style is just all over the place all the time. That's everyone though, other than Socrates. Socrates was the only one that was straightforward. Yeah, he was clear. Same with Plato. Well, Socrates and Plato, same person. <laughs> 
conspiracy theory i mean yeah pretty conspiracy much I mean, yeah, pretty, you know what you know what i can agree with that i can see where you're coming from on there every philosophy is confusing i'm here to to we're here to simplify kantian ethics today oh boy kantian ethics are like a, a step above everyone else's else's ethics at least in his own view well <laughs> here you go mr man look at how well you've taught us we're gonna do such a good job little introduction about kant kant was a german philosopher born in 1724 so what a time to be alive i mean mm -hmm. we all love those 1700s he's currently considered one of the most influential philosophers of modern europe and just general western school of thought that's right he wasn't just an ethical philosopher he also studied epistemology and metaphysics and i know that like for a fact he is going to come up a lot in future seasons of this podcast because he's touched a lot of different areas and his stuff is like is famously complicated like it's it's built a lot of like it's built up a lot of you know of our modern society and a lot of his ideas are very prized but they are often like super super like hardcore mm -hmm. Like really out there, you know. Plato's talking about how everybody who's in the cave has no idea what's going on out the cave. Very simple stuff. Kant's, you know, talking about uh, like if like the fabric of reality and if anything makes any sense. <laughs> Let's phrase it like this: Plato's talking about all the people who are in the cave. The people in the cave are everyone other than Kant. Kant's the only one. Yeah, outside no, there of the you cave. go. There you go. That's perfect. <laughs> Kant, Kant built the cave. I think. Um, Kant, Kant was never even in the cave. He, he was Kant, always Kant outside. Kant wasn't of it. even aware that there was a cave. <laughs> he's downstream. He's in Saskatchewan, running in the open fields right now that's right starting at the very beginning april 22nd in the city of let me get this right Königsberg of prussia well it was once prussia right a child is born he was the fourth kid out of a whopping 11 i guess 10 siblings because he was it was 11 children but sadly only five out of those 11 lived long enough to become adults which is just so depressing but like times were different, sign man. of the times yeah yeah usually i like to give like a little spiel about the philosopher's upbringing but his parents were both pretty normal like they did like craftsman type work and his childhood was nothing weird or out of the ordinary he was basically just a nerd he just went to school, yada, yada, yada. It, it really says a lot when the philosopher with the strangest ideas, like, humanly possible is, of course, the one who had a completely normal yeah, upbringing. Yeah, what is up with that? All of them usually are so weird. They're like... Like, they always have, like, these really strange beginnings where it's like, yeah, no wonder this guy was critiquing society right. at its very core. But Kant had no reason. He had no reason to be Kant. You're, you're every Sunday just disproving why anything should exist or whatever. So, so wacky. I will mention that he never got married. He was barely five feet tall, which, like, hashtag same. <laughs> I can relate. You know, I never knew that he was barely five know, feet tall. I know, it changes... And <laughs> that's... It changes my image of him so much barely five feet tall and legend has it he was quite the fancy dresser yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> i just like that i like that he cared about fashion i don't know he's not even he's so short i love that for him when he published his work quote-unquote critique of pure reason in 1781 which is now by the way considered one of the most critical and thought-provoking books in all of western philosophy very famous work try and read it you probably won't be able to never read it before <laughs> people surprisingly didn't like it not surprisingly people unsurprisingly didn't like it it was too long and it was confusing like at the time yeah at the at time, the time at the time ah, okay it was so long it was confusing and so like the reviews came in rough he still managed to become very popular during his time alive but only because this other guy carl reinhold used to go out and read these like kantian opinions to the public all the time so it wasn't even because of him it was because this other guy was like a big fan and he made him famous still he put on a brave face and appeared 
unbothered by the critics as he continued to write and publish his work throughout the 1780s. In papers like The Groundwork of Metaphysics of Morals, that was from 1785, and then The Critique of Practical Reason from 1788, Kant developed his own moral philosophy, creating what we now consider the start of modern deontology. The 80s were a wild time, man. The 80s were like, that's, they were hip. That's where you wanted to be. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to really get into deontological stuff. Yeah, that's right. If you really wanted deontology, you'd have to go back to the 80s. Yeah, 1980s was like if you wanted to get into some weird pill stuff. And the 1780s were if you wanted to get into some weird critique of ethics stuff. Yeah, there you go. 80s are just weird all around, though. The first thing that Kant noticed when he began studying ethics was that not every choice is a moral choice. Which makes sense. Like, that's a good thing to, like, set up as a foundation. Like, okay, first thing I have to establish, like, is everything ethical? No, it's not all ethical because we have the ability to choose between, you know, one action or another, but that doesn't make that choice ethically important. Either, yeah. So, like, for example, if I want to get good grades, then I can choose to either hand in an assignment or not hand in an assignment. Now, in that example, there's an obvious choice. If I want to get good grades, I should rationally and using reason hand in that assignment that's an example of what Kant calls a hypothetical imperative. Okay. An imperative. An imperative is any action deemed to be necessary. So handing in the assignment is imperative to me getting good grades. The reason why it's hypothetical is because it's only necessary if I want good grades. If I don't care about my grades, uh, then I don't have to hand anything in. So in a hypothetical imperative, the action is only necessary depending on what I actually desire. Right. And then that's so that would be like there would be no ethics involved in such a right. decision. Right. Yeah. Hypothetical imperatives are not moral choices. They leave no mark on our like ethical transcripts, if you will. <laughs> ethical transcripts. <laughs> yeah. Because do you remember in middle school when we used to talk about our uh, ecological footprint or something? Like our green I do footprint? That. Yeah, exactly. And they I used to literally that. make it seem like when we die, we will have left a footprint. And, like, it's the same thing. Like, when we die, we will have left, like, an ethical footprint. There you an go. An ethical transcript. Did you have a good ethical transcript going so far, Jordan? Ooh, ee, that's questionable. <laughs> I have a lot of years left to redeem myself, though. I'm really hoping I do. I think there were a good five years in my entire lifespan that were not that good, and I'm, I'm slowly redeeming myself from that. I'm sure everybody's got a little bit of a... A little bit of five years? Some black ink on their ethical transcripts. A couple Fs here and there. Yeah, I'm sure. Maybe a couple like incompletes <laughs> but hey 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 80 percent is still a good grade 80 percent is a very good grade on your ethical transcript there you go so hypothetical imperatives not moral choices but then there are choices that are moral so in those circumstances you still have an imperative you have an action that is necessary except this time it's necessary no matter what right there is a correct choice regardless of your desires this is what we call drum roll please a categorical imperative. A the categorical imperative. So when we talk in deontology about like moral duties and obligations, the categorical imperative is the moral obligation. Mm -hmm. Now, we are in the season of deontology, which means everything is duty-based ethics. The question that separates each of the deontological theories is the one that asks, how do we know which duties to follow? So using Kant's logic, it's easy. If I'm put into a situation where I need to make a moral choice, 
all I need to do is find the categorical categorical imperative. Thank you. you and you can find the categorical imperative. I'm going to keep saying categorical wrong. Watch me. You can find the categorical imperative by using any or all of the four guiding rules that Kant has created. Do you remember there being four rules? Because I don't remember there being four rules. Uh, I don't remember ever talking about that. I know. Uh, so I don't think I know Kant's four rules. So this will be the first time I'm hearing this too. Me and the audience are on the same wavelength. He calls the rules formulas, but I promise there's no math. I would not be doing it if there was. <laughs> Honestly? Yeah. 10 out of 10 times? Math over ethics. I'm just going to put that out there. No, 10 out of 10 times. no. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, listen, I, I enjoy ethics more. I enjoy it more. Like discussing it, but you like that math. But at has the end of the day, answers. At the end of the day, math has an answer. Math has answers, and I can get behind that. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get behind coming to incredibly, usually contradictory conclusions. So wait, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Do you find math more stressful or ethics more stressful? Because hmm. I find math more stressful. I mean, it's way easier for me to not be stressed by something I know there isn't an answer to. But if I'm not getting an answer and I know that there is one, right? Then I feel stupid, and that's math. I would say, at least for me, it depends on who I'm talking to, because if I'm talking to someone who has like a, a completely like backwards ethical viewpoint for me or believes like, you know, then, then, I'd, then I'd find that stressful. OK, you know, it's very rare that you'd find someone who actually has like well-defined ethical rules for themselves or uh -huh. ethical principles for themselves. But should you run into someone like that and you disagree with them, I would find that stressful. Oh, you'd find that stressful. Okay, I understand but, that. Uh, like right now, obviously, uh, we're having a fun ethical discussion mm -hmm. so people understand yes. some form of ethics. So this is fine. This is less stressful than math. But I feel like my stress w would just peak absolutely peak if i met someone who just completely disagreed with me someone who was like, like a real life egoist like an actual real life egoist oh. and like that's just what they follow they just follow right. egoism point blank period and they are like they would die for egoism. oh my god i don't care about egoism <laughs> anyways it's like yeah go ahead go i was ahead. gonna say the, the, the rules the rules the formulas right right we're, we're getting off track there will be so many times that we'll get off track so i just want to yeah, really no, stick to the formulas hammer this in exactly <laughs> The rules are as follows. Number one, the formula of universability. Number two, the formula of the end itself. Number three, the formula of autonomy. And number four, the formula of kingdom ends. Okay. Last one sounds kind of fantastical, if I do kinda, say something. Yeah, so. kind of epic. You know what? Here's the thing. So I don't know these rules. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try and guess what each one means. Oh, please do. Okay, number one, the formula of universability. Because I do know the rough idea of the categorical imperative. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to assume that probably means if this is a rule, this is always the rule. So if lying is wrong, there is no circumstance in which lying can be right. Okay, good That's guess. That's what I'm guessing good that guess. rule means. Uh, I plead the fifth. Good guess. Okay, thank you. Uh, number two, the formula of the end itself. Okay. <laughs> this one might lead you astray. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to guess what it means is does it matter in the end? Like, will it, will it matter? Like, will ends be met by, uh, by this moral action? Okay, good guess. That, that's what I'm going with for now. Number three is the formula of autonomy. <sighs> I feel like I need the definition of autonomy for this one. Autonomy is like, I don't even know the definition, but like, we are autonomous. We're like, normal. Well, I'm just gonna look up like, like, I know what autonomy roughly means. I'm gonna look up the rough definition of it. The, the definition of autonomy is like, the quality or state of being self-governing. Uh-huh. At least in, you know, in a, what's called... Webster's Dictionary. Yeah, yeah. What I would say 
is like if the rule constantly makes sense like in a vacuum or can always apply to something then it meets this definition i, I know like i don't know how to put that into proper no, 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 explanation fine. we can leave it Did at that okay okay the formula of kingdom ends formula hmm, of kingdom ends <laughs> This sounds like, like, how, uh, make sure that in your choices, you're taking down the patriarchy. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. This one is like, okay, it, it's similar to the second one. Okay. Not the same, hey, hey, but hey, similar. Hey, that's good. Yeah. But what I would go with is rather than thinking like, does it matter in the total end? You know, like, will will it make a difference against all ends? I think this is something more like at the end of the day, you know, like the other one would be at the end of your life. Did you make a difference? This one is more at the end of the day. And I guess that because as much as I think that a kingdom sounds like something that would last a while, I think that kingdom is a lot more temporary than just literally the end. So that's what I'm going with. Thank you for your guesses. Okay. I will tell you that only one out of the four of them is correct <laughs> I, i'm betting i'm like 90 percent sure it was the first one yeah 90 uh, yes, sure. correct. yeah yeah it's the first um, one that's what i thought so let's dive deeper into each of these rules i will use kant's original wording for all of the like scholars and students who need a breakdown of the language but we will also then describe each rule in simple plain terminology ye modern english ye modern english indeed there you go so number one, the formula of universability. Act only according to the maxim which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law without contradiction. So let's break that down for a moment. When he says maxim, he means rule about the action. Right. And when he says universal law, he's talking about an action that must always be done in similar circumstances. So in simpler words, the rule of universability is act only in a way that you would want your actions to become applicable to every person in a similar situation. It's literally what I said before. If mm. something is wrong, it is always wrong. If something is right, it is always right. Not it's always wrong. Because let's not think of like the obvious. Let's not talk about lying or... Let's say let's say crossing the street. Crossing the when street, When it's your exactly. turn to cross the street. Well, that's the thing, right? So you're not going to say that crossing the street is always wrong. Exactly. It's about put in similar circumstances. Crossing the street without looking both ways is always wrong. Right. But keyword like always wrong in similar circumstances. So like picture this. You're in fourth grade and it's lunchtime. You notice that Stuart, goddamn Stuart, sitting next to you has two packs of Dunkaroos in his lunch bag. Okay, you really want one of those Dunkaroos. Did you ever eat Dunkaroos? I have had Dunkaroos. Okay, good. You know, before we continue, what happened to Dunkaroos? They were, they were, t they were, uh, what's it called? Like when they don't exist anymore? Well, I mean, that, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> no, no, there's like a, there's like a thing, like when it's like, oh, discontinued. Discontinued, oh. But they're not really? discontinued in Australia. That's the only place you can get them. They were discontinued in Canada. Pack your bags. They're in Australia. We're, we're going to go get a lifetime supply of Dunkaroos. <laughs> Literally, I've been wanting to like illegally order Yeah, you know, it just, you know, you just, just reminded me of like so many childhood memories of the best snack if at anyone if anyone uh, is listening from anywhere other than canada early 2000s or australia period and you are curious about dunkaroos search it up they're basically crack like animal crackers with just icing it's just a pack of icing and you just dipped the crackers in the icing and we got sent this to school like this is why we were all fat it was, as it was kids. the coolest thing ever it was it was just it was literally animal crackers with icing it was just better than animal crackers. like some some kids got packed like the like ritz crackers with the disgusting processed cheese no. and i'm like that's lame I have animal crackers with icing. <laughs> which which Dunkaroos did you like better? Did you like the chocolate ones or the vanilla ones? Uh, I think I ate either. It was icing. Icing is icing no okay, matter what. 
Anyway, back on topic. Back okay, on topic. Exactly. We just we just had a little fangirl mode about Dunkaroos. <laughs> so you notice that Stuart has two Dunkaroos and you want one of the Dunkaroos. Before he starts eating, Stuart gets up and he goes to the washroom, okay? You could easily take one of Stuart's Dunkaroos while he's gone. And you just know Stuart. Like, you know he wouldn't be upset because he still has one more pack of Dunkaroos waiting for him when he returns. Before you make any decision, though, you decide to search for a categorical imperative because you're in fourth grade and so everyone does that. Right. Uh, you know, just in case. So what do you think the first question you have to ask yourself is what is the hmm that is that curious question <laughs> uh, as a fourth grader and uh also we're, no, we're gonna pretend this isn't true but as a second year university student <laughs> i have no idea so using the formula of universability the first question you have to ask yourself is what's the general rule that's typically applied to the action i'm about to perform you're looking for the maxim right Okay. So the maxim of taking Stuart's Dunkaroos without his knowledge would be stealing. Okay. That's the general rule of the action that you're about to perform. It's stealing. So what, what do you think the second question you have to ask yourself is, Will? Oh, there's multiple. Okay, okay. Is stealing wrong Mor or morally dubious? It makes it sound smarter that way. <laughs> morally dubious. The second question you have to ask yourself is, am I okay with the maxim? being the acceptable thing to do by all other people in right. similar circumstances. Are you okay with the universability of stealing? So if Stuart comes back and sees you took his Dunkaroos, he might not be upset, you're right. But what if he then came back and he reached into your lunch bag and he grabbed the turkey sandwich with like the crust cut off? Like, would you be okay with that? Because if the answer is no, then you found the categorical imperative. Ah, okay, I see. I see. When faced with a moral choice to take the Dunkaroos or not to take them, the categorical imperative is to not steal. And it is our moral obligation to make that choice. I don't know. I'm... <sighs> I mean, I agree, but I, I mean, the, I, I think the Dunkaroos are worth that turkey sandwich. Mm. In all circumstances, those Dunkaroos are worth it. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but if you did it, but, oh, wait, wait, no, this is good. This is good that you were like, I think I might be okay with stealing because the Dunkaroos are worth it. Damn straight. You know what you do then? You move on to formula number two. Right. Because if you haven't found a categorical imperative, you keep going down the line until you get through all four. And if you haven't found one then, then it's fine. You can do it. Let's just hope this doesn't appear on my end of life transcript. transcript. That brings us to number two, the formula of the end itself, which reads, act so that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in that of another, always as an end and never as a mere means. Ah, okay. I see how that, mm -hmm. I, I understand that. Now, now that makes sense. Right. So let's break the language down a bit. When he says mere means, he's talking about using something to benefit yourself while giving zero consideration towards a thing that's being used. Right. To put it simply, act so that you treat all humans, yourself included, with the consideration that they deserve. I suppose in like a more complicated way, it's kind of it's kind of saying the ends should not justify the means. Picture this, okay? You and your mom are chilling out at home watching the Olympics. Damn straight. There's a knock at the door. Have you been watching the Olympics? I haven't been watching the Olympics. I'm going to be honest. I was uninterested this year. Normally, I'm like, I'm pumped. At least we didn't like, there's no room for us to get into a tangent about I it. I broke the number one rule of improv. Yeah, you said no. But that's good, honestly, for this moment. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, this, go on. In this other universe, you and your mom are chilling at home. You are watching the Olympics. Okay. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. I just knocked. I hope my mic picked that up. Your mom goes to answer it. It's Stuart carrying an AR-15 rifle. Wow, this <laughs> got dark really fast. He's clearly come back to get his revenge for those Dunkaroos. Damn it. He says, good morning, Sherry. I'm looking for William. Where might he be? Your mom knows that you're in the house. And yet her first instinct is to say he's at the mall. This, of course, would be a lie. 
You see, unlike consequentialism, it doesn't matter if our actions result in a loss of life. What matters is the action itself. Mm -hmm. And the action in question here is lying. And lying at this point might as well have like a giant flashing sign above it that reads, no way, Jose. (laughs) No one is arguing that your mom should just like hand you over to the fifth grader with a rifle. But there are other options to choose from that don't involve lying. Right. Like I did earlier, she could plead the fifth. She could call Stuart's mom. If she has proper training, she could sit Stuart down and give him a therapy session or two. You know, you just can't <laughs> lie. You are, you are intended to strictly avoid that since the ends don't justify the means. Mm-hmm. Since the categorical imperative is aligned with moral absolutism. That's right. We talked about that in episode 12 of any of y'all need a reminder. But because of moral absolutism, it makes the categorical imperative very controversial when you explore such extreme cases like this one because maybe the previous formula of universability failed her. Mm-hmm. Like maybe she believes that lying is okay to do in circumstances similar to this one. Just like how you said... You think that stealing was okay in, in circumstances where you get Dunkaroos out of it, you know? Damn straight. <laughs> Sometimes the first formula doesn't work because we're blinded by our desires. So that's when the formula of the end itself steps in. You must treat all humans with the consideration that they deserve. If she were to lie, she would be disregarding the interests of at least one, if not all, three people. You, herself, and Stuart. Let me explain. When she lies, she fails to consider your best interest because it could hypothetically still lead to your death. What if you overheard Stuart from inside the house and decided to make a quick escape? On your way out of the house, Stuart sees you and then you're shot. If your mom would have told the truth and said he's in the house watching TV, then you would have escaped successfully while Stuart was left clueless inside. Ah, okay, interesting. Number two, when she lies, she fails to consider her own best interest because she could shift her moral role. When she lies and you're killed trying to escape, she is now responsible for your death. Whereas if she told the truth, any possible death would fall on Stuart and not herself. It's definitely not in your own best interest to turn yourself into the guilty party. Finally, number three, when she lies, she fails to consider Stuart's best interest. Stuart is a human and Khan says to treat humanity with consideration. By lying to Stuart, she has failed to consider the basic foundation of his humanity, that he has his own goals and his own interests, and even though one of those goals may be to kill her own son, she can't just mess with his humanity. Instead of treating Stuart as a boy with his own dream, a murderous dream, albeit, but still a dream nonetheless, she has treated Stuart as a means to her own end, a way to get what she wants, which is her son alive. Right, okay. And that leads me directly into the formula of autonomy. Act that your will can regard itself at the same time as making universal law through its maxims. So in other words, act so that whatever decision you make, it does not strip any human of their autonomy. Mm. here's the thing in order to successfully apply the categorical imperative you need to understand the difference between using people and using people as mere means using people is totally it's it's totally okay as long as we acknowledge that they are humans with their own interests and that they agree to being used like i am currently using you to create a podcast right but i am aware that you are your own human you could say no you could hang up whenever you wanted i'd respect that and you've agreed to being used in this way 
for example, this is like why unions exist in terms right. of jobs yeah. to protect people from, you know, from from greed and from hot, like from more powerful people mm-hmm. who possess more resources. It's inherently designed to allow people to have their own free will and to be protected by the categorical imperatives. Mm-hmm. So that companies don't use their people as mere means. Exactly. They just use their people. When I use a plate to put like my pizza on it Mm -hmm. i am using that plate as mere means because if the plate broke i would throw out the plate and i'd grab a new plate right you can use a plate as mere means you cannot use humans as mere means humans are not objects that exist to be used by others plates exist for people to use them humans exist for themselves because we have the ability to set our own goals and work towards them and have dreams and aspirations and whatever, we are autonomous. We are self-governed, as you said from Webster's Dictionary. So this autonomy (laughs) gives us a sense of moral worth, making the manipulation of any other human being never the ethical choice. So when your mom lied to Stuart about your location, she stripped Stuart of his ability to make an autonomous decision on how to act, and therefore she failed to complete the formula of autonomy, to act that your will can regard itself at the same time as making universal law through its maxims. Couldn't have said it better myself since I didn't know it. <laughs> Do you have any questions, comments, concerns? Uh, no, I think all this is clicking for me, at least. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing, but the way you just said for me was very funny. Like, I'll, hear it, I'll, I'll hear it back when I play it back. Like, I think all this is clicking for me, at least. Listen, listen, I'll, I'll give you a call after the podcast after I hear it and I laugh at it a little bit. That's good. <laughs> okay. Point. And then finally, we're left with the last rule, the formula of kingdom ends. Mm. Act as though you were the king of the kingdom of ends and therefore only in such a way that would harmonize with such a kingdom. Uh, Simpler terms, act as though you're the lawmaker and therefore only in a way that would create communal harmony if the maxim was a binding law on everyone else. It's It's not dissimilar to the first one, but it's, you know, design a law that you yourself would be willing to follow. I mean, it's really similar to the first one, to the formula of universability. That's what I'm saying. Instead of asking yourself whether you want stealing to be okay in people's minds, you're asking yourself if you would want stealing to be the law, right? Like if you Mm -hmm. were to steal the Dunkaroos and you are declaring that it is now law to steal what you want, which leads to the next question. Like if it was law that everyone had to steal what they wanted, would it create a harmonious society? Probably not. Makes perfect sense to me again. (laughs) This one's like a little more, I think the last one, the formula of kingdom ends is a little more extreme. I can see where it's coming from, but uh, this is deontological. So, I mean, it was all going to be extreme from the very start. Right, right. And it's also like the last rule is definitely the least employed out of the four because people tend to find the categorical imperative before they even get this far down the line. Right. I think they had to add like an extra extreme onto there just to be like, just in case you haven't found one yet, this one probably will lead you to find one. Like, would you want this being law? But sometimes, I mean, again, you're supposed to hypothetically look for the categorical imperative through all four of these formulas. And then if you don't find them, then it's not considered a moral choice. It doesn't go onto your ethical transcript. And that's kind of like the point of the four formulas. So if you can't find something for one of the formulas, then it's not a moral choice. Uh, no. You, if you can't find something for one of the formulas, try another formula. Let me ask a question. What if two people have separate answers for an action to the formula? Is it to be applied to simply oneself and their own choices? Or are you to find an agreement between the two? I think the point of having four formulas is that if I don't find a categorical imperative on one 
or two, I'll find one on three, and you'll probably find one on one, or you'll find one on four, but I think the point is that if the action is actually bad, it will come up on everyone's somewhere. Okay. I think that's the goal of having the four. I'm not sure. I. That makes It would sense. be a very long and tedious experiment to try and figure out if the math is correct. You know what I mean? Like if it actually does right. work out that way. But I think that's the goal that Kant had in mind is like, I'm creating these four so that no matter who you are and your own subjective opinions, your result will come out the same as the next guy's result. So the point is it's everyone, no matter what reasoning they have behind their choices, should come to the same conclusion that the action is righteous or the mm -hmm. action is wrong. Right. Okay. Just a little bit of continued Kantness, because I think it's sad. People die. Want to pay homage to them. Kant continued publishing new work into his old age right up until he went blind and died on February 12th, which is happy birthday, Jacob Nakin, um, of 1804. <laughs> and uh, the categorical imperative <laughs> remains one of the biggest lessons in philosophy classes and lecture halls. And, uh, I don't know. I just want to know, like, your opinion. Now that we've covered the formulas, just, like, give it to me straight. We're sitting in Mr. Man's class, and, like, I'm like, what do you think of the categorical imperative, Will? Well, now that I've heard it, because I, did, I didn't know it was that, like, you know, of course it was this in-depth. You know, if I did any of Kant's readings, I would have figured that out. Right. When I initially think of the categorical imperative, at least before we had this chat today, mm -hmm. I would usually be like, it's really complicated to just say an action is what's called. It is universally bad or universally good. It's really hard to come to that conclusion, at least in my own moral code or my own moral beliefs. I, I can't really justify that. Mm -hmm. But when I hear the formula and I, and I now understand, you know, the, um, the steps you should take to consider if an action is justifiable or not, I think it, it clicks a little more and I get it a little more. And I can see why this might be, you know, important for many groups of people and for many people just in general. Mm -hmm. And overall would lead, should we all agree on things, to perhaps a more utopian-esque society where people can agree on what's wrong and what isn't. I definitely see that too, because like the formula of... Um whatever, the second one, the formula of the end itself, it's all about, like, humanity. And everything that they say, even though it's the reason why it's so controversial, because, like, I use the example of, like, Stuart showing up, like, wanting to kill you, but that's because Kant famously used that example of, like, a murderer asking for a location of a victim and someone lying about it. Like, he did write about that. And I, I know that it's so extreme, and that's what makes it so controversial. However, I can get behind it. That doesn't mean that in real life, if I was put into that situation, that I'd actually follow it, because I don't think I would. Mm -hmm. I think we're, like, victim to our own desires way more than we are logical. But from a logical point of view, I can totally get behind it. It would be more utopian, even if the person did die. It's like there's only one person at fault here, and everyone else made the right decision. Right. Well, I will say something something that I've always found interesting, and, I, and I've had this discussion with friends of mine from class before. We had a really big discussion one time because one of my friends had an ethical code that he consistently followed every day. Mm. And, you know, he criticized me for not having That's one. That's tough. It's a it tough is thing tough. To and do. he tried and he tried to like he only had like one like concrete law. What was it? Don't kill. That's pretty good. Concrete yeah, law. It, it was don't kill. OK, then that's, it was, a, pretty, it was don't kill. that's a pretty solid that concrete like, law. That it's like, you know, killing never justified for any logical reason whatsoever. You cannot justify killing. And I agree with that, like 99.9% .9 of the time. But there's like a 
0.01% of the time, mm-hmm. where I might say an absolute dictator who, basically Hitler, where I might agree with it. Oh, you mean like to kill them? Yeah. Oh, okay, Or like it. as in, yeah, yeah. I'm, no, nev- never like murdering, never murdering. What I'm saying is like, is it justified for the benefit of everyone else to kill someone who is harming everyone else? Yeah, I was going to say too, are you, is is it killing that was his absolute law was not good? Or is it murder because... No, it's, it's specifically that like human beings inflicting suffering slash death on another human being. Okay, but self-defense, is that inflicting suffering slash death? That's exactly, I think one of the most important things that humans possess over anything else is that we can act independently of some kind of logic. We can act irrationally. Not which can, I, we do all the time <laughs> in every and I, circumstance. Honestly, I, I, think, I think it is a strength and a weakness. Mm-hmm. I think of my dogs. Oh my God, your dogs are so cute. And <laughs> my dogs think, admittedly, which would be hard to believe, in a logical <laughs> manner. I am hungry, I will go bug the owner for food. If they are tired, they go sleep. They do. You know, there's no irrational questioning of it. It is, I need this, so I will try to obtain this. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I think makes humans special is we can act independently of that. If we need to, we can say normally stealing is wrong. But if someone is starving on the street and they steal something, we can say, you know what? That makes sense. We can let that slide. Can I pose something now that I've just listened to you say all that? Do you think that maybe dogs have an easier time being rational and not being irrational because they don't have ethical compasses to like hold themselves to they have no concept of stealing if they found a hot dog on the street they take it and no one would hold them accountable for it and they have no concept of self right well wait i've seen dogs look in mirrors Uh, (laughs) i am not always certain the dog knows it's themselves in the mirror yeah you're absolutely right (laughs) it's like like certain animals do know like dolphins know i I remember i read a thing on this that like you know nasa put like a dolphin in a room with a mirror and then they put like they drew a mark on it to see if it could recognize like that you know it was itself and the dolphin tried to rub the mark off when it saw it in the mirror because it knew that was it hi this is editing jordan here did he just say nasa why would NASA do that experiment? Anyways, back to the show. My dog will see food in her, like, in her fur, you know, in the mirror, <laughs> and she won't care. But maybe they just don't care. I don't know. I like getting I mean, into this maybe, dog conversation. Hey, hey, she, she's really hungry. Because then I, I was thinking, too, I was like, just hypothetically, like, maybe dogs do act irrational. Like, maybe my dog is like, maybe he's always hungry, but he's like, I'd rather play with this ball right now, even though I'm hungry. Like, I, I think they act fully rational. Like, it, it's, it's, it's a strange thought because we think, you know, dogs are not as smart as us. I think of, so two of my dogs, uh, Socks and Cha-Cha. So cute. For those who know the two of them, they don't get along. They, they fight all the time. And nine out of ten times, it's Chacha's fault. I'm just, I'm going to put that out there. Chacha will get in Socks' face. I don't stand for this Chacha slander. This, this little, this little fat Pomeranian. She's 12 pounds. Chacha is 12 pounds? Yeah, she's, oh she's my God, super she's overweight. But she's so cute. She's, she's really chunky though. Like she'll try to play with Socks by like biting at his face. She won't actually bite him, but she'll like, she'll rile him up because she wants to play. And then Socks will usually retaliate by just barking at her and like trying to. He's a to... lover, not a fighter. He is words after he, she runs away he'll stop trying to fight her but when i think of a human i would think if a human was attacked by another human and they were irrationally defending themselves if the other human suddenly backed off i think they would keep trying to fight the other they human. or they could like they might they want could. to yeah like they might want to no obviously it's not everyone this is a specific case yeah, yeah yeah but like you know if someone started hitting someone else usually most of us have the instinct to hit back with the intent of an like inflicting like like pain on the other person yeah if we have a high testosterone level that day for sure yeah exactly (laughs) 
But when like when Socks just, you know, bites at Chacha to get her to go away, he usually just does it. And when she leaves, he doesn't care yeah, anymore. The job is done. Like he's like moved the, on. Not the threat. I don't mean threat, but kind of like the threat is gone. Like the problem exactly. is gone. So he moves on. When it comes to Chacha, he will sometimes expect her to do that because evidence would show that she does that. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Uh-huh. But he doesn't go out of his way to make her yeah, life harder. There's not, there's not a lot of, like, emotional complexity to dogs, I don't think. Despite the fact that my dog showcases so many levels of trauma. But, like, it is it is very basic showcasing of trauma. Like, when you see, like, a hurt dog, like, you, there's only a couple things that they're... Like, an, an emotionally hurt dog. Like there's only... When you get a rescue, right? There's only, like, a couple of outcomes that are gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And you can expect them. Yeah, you're right. I'm... You've you've taken me over to the dark side. I agree with you now. <laughs> the dogs are completely rational and like they just they don't have an irrational bone in their body. This episode is now gonna be called <laughs> Kantian Ethics and Dogs. There you go. That brings us to the end of today's episode, actually. Will, thank you so much for joining me at the back of the class. Anytime. Talking about both categorical imperative and the rationality of dogs. Yeah. I like that I was actually able to fit in two very interesting topics into one episode. Um, dogs and universal laws. Dogs Oh my god, that's the name of the episode, Dogs and Universal Laws. What more could you ask for? Is there anything you'd like to plug before we go? Just remember that your dog is more rational than you are. You know what? I'm going to plug both Cha-Cha and Socks. That's my plug. <laughs> and uh, you know what? Then, then I'm going to plug Pancake because I didn't bring her up this episode. For those who don't know, I have a third dog. Her name is Pancake. She's the nicest. Pancake doesn't get enough because Pancake isn't in on the drama. That's why she doesn't get enough news. Pancake Pancake is the, is my friendliest dog. She's really nice. She gets along like with, she loves people. With a name like Pancake, you definitely do you expect expecting? it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And because my dog would be pissed if I didn't mention him after talking about three other dogs, we have to plug Axel as well. So thank you, Axel. Thanks for being my dog. Creds. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. My name is Jordan Preston. And if A, you have a dog with a really good temperament and demeanor, and B, that dog's name is Pancake, then C, you might actually be Will Silverman, and I suggest you go to a doctor to seek medical help on that issue. Excuse me, class. <laughs> class. <laughs> <laughs> 